Welcome to Time Travelling Teeth, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join our TARDIS team as they come across a new foe in the Arkham space. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on the story. To join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Now though, Paddy, I know you're still a little bit unwell, but could I trouble you for a story recap, please? I shall persevere. <laughs> if I fall in the attempt, well, you know, you're shit already. No, we'll make yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can be replaced, it's fine. <laughs> That's your cue to say, no, I can't be. Oh yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> you're... You're a crucial part of this experience. Okay, I'm not joking. You, of course. Of course you are. Cool. Part 1. On a space station orbiting Earth, an unseen figure stalks through the cryostasis chamber containing the crew and opens one of their pods. Later, the TARDIS lands in an empty room on the station and the Doctor exits first, giving out to Harry, calling him a ham-fisted idiot for messing with the controls and forcing their landing. Harry exits amazed at his new surroundings and begins to espouse the benefits the TARDIS would have for the London police force, but Sarah Jane tells him to stop babbling. The Doctor points out that there isn't much oxygen, and then uses a yo-yo to test the gravity, which leads him to believe that they are on an artificial satellite or space station of some type. Sarah Jane starts to worry about the lack of oxygen, but the Doctor manages to find a control panel and reactivates the power. Sarah Jane sees a door open to another room and calls out to the Doctor, but he is too interested with the control panel, and neither he nor Harry notice her go into the room. The Doctor says that judging by the technology, the space station was built in the 30th century, but they arrived thousands of years after its construction. They then hear a dull thudding sound and notice that Sarah Jane is missing. Unbeknownst to them, the door closed after her when she went into the room and she is currently suffering from the lack of oxygen. The doctor eventually finds the door, but says it must have a remote control and he asks Harry if he had touched anything. After a few moments' hesitation, he says that he did and the doctor urges him to struggle past the oxygen deprivation to remember which button he pressed. Harry presses the button and the door opens, allowing them to access the unconscious Sarah Jane. However, the door closes after them and the doctor goes to a nearby control panel to see if he can open it again. He notices that nothing seems to be operating correctly and he opens the control panel to discover that the power cables have been cut. Harry then passes out and the doctor frantically tries to rewire the panel and manages to get the air flowing again. The doctor wakes up Harry and the two of them carry Sarah Jane to a nearby bench but he goes back to working on the panel. He says that it looked like something bit through the cables on purpose. Harry then helps rouse Sarah Jane, who threatens to spit in his eye if he calls her old girl in his old-fashioned manner again. The doctor gets the door open, and Harry says that some brandy should help them both up and running again. The doctor starts to lead him to the TARDIS, but Harry points out a strange dish descending from the ceiling, and they take cover as it fires a bolt of electricity at them, which destroys one of Harry's shoes that fell off. Sarah Jane asks what is going on, but she suddenly falls unconscious as lights flash around the bench and she disappears. The Doctor uses his hat on an antenna to try and gauge the range and sensor level of the dish and it fires another bolt at it. Harry calls out to Sarah Jane to tell her to stay away from the door, but he doesn't realise that she is gone. The Doctor uses the antenna again, but the dish doesn't react. He realises that the dish is attuned to attack organic matter and they are safe so long as they remain under the bench that they are using for cover. He then uses his sonic screwdriver to loosen the desk's moorings. They then manoeuvre the desk around to the control panel that has the cutoff switch for the dish, but they can't reach it without activating the dish itself. The doctor tries to use his scarf, but he gets hit by the dish. 
He then gives Harry a cricket ball when he says he could hit the switch with it, but it gets blown to bits. The doctor then gets Harry to throw his other shoe as a distraction, and he dashes out to the switch, successfully turning it off. They then call out for Sarah Jane. At that moment, she wakes up in an alcove in another room filled with sounds of soft music and a voice welcoming her to Nervous Station, and tells her to remain still for the processing. Another voice, belonging to a woman called the High Minister, thanks Sarah Jane for the supreme sacrifice she is about to make, which causes her to panic, but she is still too weak from the oxygen deprivation to do anything. A screen then seals off the alcove, and a gas starts to fill it. The Doctor and Harry examine the bench they put Sarah Jane on, and the Doctor discovers that it is equipped with a short-range teleport. They make their way through to the station to look for her. They come across a closed door, and a voice tells them to stay away as the area is sterile, but they open it anyway. Harry spots something move up ahead, but the Doctor says he didn't see anything, and they see a large slime trail leading into a grate too small for them to fit. They then enter a decontamination chamber before entering another control room. The doctor notices a door marked Animal Botanic and he realises that the station is a cryogenic repository. He also discovers a large cache of microfilm that detailing all of human accomplishment from architecture to music. Harry suggests that it could be some sort of survival kit and the doctor wonders what could have happened to humans who were meant to benefit from it. Another door opens and they go to investigate it, seeing it as a cryogenics chamber filled with hundreds of sleeping people. The Doctor applauds humanity for its indomitable will, whilst Harry examines one of the bodies, leading the Doctor to explain how suspended animation works. The Doctor then says that they will need to find Sarah Jane, but before they go, Harry points out a slime trail coming from a grate into the room. The Doctor notices heat coming from the slime trail, and starts to get worried despite Harry's best efforts to say it's nothing to worry about. The Doctor says that they should look around to make sure everything is okay, and after a few moments, Harry finds Sarah Jane in one of the cryostasis pods, dressed like one of the sleeping crew. The Doctor mournfully says that it would be almost impossible to wake her up now, but Harry says they need to try. The Doctor says they will need a resuscitation unit, and Harry begins searching the nearby storage presses for one. As he opens one of them, a large green insect comes out at him. Part 2. The insect, which is about the size of a fully grown man, falls dead to the floor. Harry asks what it is, but the Doctor says that they can find out after they locate a resuscitation unit for Sarah Jane. They find what they think is a first aid kit, but before they can examine it, their attention is drawn to one of the pods beginning to glow. The doctor opens the pod and a woman inside it motions to the first aid kit and takes something out of it, which she presses against her chest. The doctor helps her out and after a few moments collecting herself, she demands to know who they are. Harry introduces himself by giving his full rank and then introduces the doctor, leading to woman to ask if they are med techs. The doctor explains that they are not skilled for the technology being used on the station. The woman introduces herself as Vira and says that she is a first med tech. The doctor brings her to Sarah Jane's pod and asks for her help in reviving her. Vira gives her an injection and says that she will either survive the process or die. She then goes to the pod containing their leader, whom she calls the Prime Unit, in the more direct vernacular that seems to be used in that time period. She says that his name is Lazar, but the crew gave him the informal name of Noah, as a reference to the biblical Ark Builder. The doctor asks what global catastrophe struck Earth, and after some confusion, Vira explains that it was ravaged by solar flares. She says the leading scientists at the time indicated that Earth would be uninhabitable for at least 5,000 years after the flares. The Doctor reveals that the cryostasis pods malfunctioned and that it has been much longer than 5,000 years. Vira says that it is impossible for the revival systems to fail, but the Doctor shows her the giant insect, which she believes is the cause for the sabotage. Vira goes back to waking up Noah, but she says there seems to be a fault in the life support systems. The Doctor goes to check the backup power systems and leaves Harry with Vira. 
fixes the power issue and then tells Harry that he's going to check the faults affecting the primary systems. Virus successfully revives Noah and then introduces him to Harry, who he calls a regressive due to his speech and mannerisms. Harry starts to retort, but instead goes to Sarah Jane when he notices her waking up. Noah is worried that the presence of Harry and the others could threaten the survival of the rest of the crew on the ship, due to its scientifically structured selection process. Vira tells him that they can put it into the council later, and goes to help Harry revive Sarah Jane. Noah then asks where the doctor is, and Harry says he went to investigate the fault at the Sonar Stacks. Noah goes to find him, arming himself as he does so. After he leaves, Vira urges Harry to take Sarah Jane and the doctor and leave, warning him of Noah's commitment to preserving the genetic purity of those on board. Sarah Jane comes to, and Harry brings her up to speed on their surroundings, and reassures her that the giant insect on the floor is dead. Vira then calls them over and demands to know what they have done with someone called Dune, who is missing from their pod. Meanwhile, the Doctor arrives at the solar stacks, and inside it sees a strange green organism that has managed to open the hatchway into it. He closes the hatch, locking the creature in, and makes his way to the backup power room. He is accosted by Noah, who holds him at gunpoint and tells him to move away. The Doctor warns him about the creature in the solar stack, but Noah shoots him and he falls to the ground. At that moment, the creature starts to break out of the hatch. Noah calls Vira and tells her about the doctor's sabotage, and she tells him about the missing person. He tells her that she is to proceed with the revival of the other crew members whilst he goes to check the solar stacks. After Vira leaves, Sergei and Harry go to find the doctor. Noah goes to the solar stacks and fires at something moving in the darkness. Suddenly, a green tendril lashes out at him and covers his hand in green slime, which causes him pain, making him faint. Sarah Jane and Harry find the Doctor, and Harry confirms that he is alive. The Doctor gets up and finishes what he was saying to Noah before he was shot. Harry says that he has gone to check the solar stacks, and the Doctor leads them to find him, saying that he is in danger. They approach the entrance to the stacks, but they are met by Noah, who says that he didn't see any creature. He then leads them back to the cryogenics chamber, keeping the hand that was covered in slime in his pocket as he does so. They arrive to find Vira waking up another crew member, Libri, who recoils in fear at the sight of Noah. Vira calms him down, and he apologises, saying that he saw something standing where Noah was. The Doctor asks what it was, but Noah silences him, and Vira says that Libri is suffering a side effect from the revival process. Noah leaves Libri to guard the others, and says that they need to stop the revival process for the rest of the crew. Vira asks why, and Noah begins to act erratically, saying that they should continue with the process before repeating his intentions to stop it. Vira asks if he is concerned about Dune, but Noah then calmly claims that he is Dune. This shocks Vira, and he then leaves to stop the revival process. The Doctor urges Libri to follow him, and Vira agrees, as stopping the revival process could be deadly. Libri says that they cannot act against him as he is their leader, but the Doctor reminds him of the strange reaction he had to what he thought he saw when he looked at Noah. Libri agrees to go after him, and after he leaves, the Doctor asks about the missing person. Harry suggests that Dune must have left the station, but the Doctor examines the empty pod and finds a large piece of membrane that he says is from an egg sac that he believes came from the giant insect. He says that it is reminiscent of a species of wasps that lay their eggs in caterpillars, and when the larvae hatch, they eat the remains of their adopted incubator. He asks Fire if Dune was a technician, based on the fact that the creature that he saw was in the solar stacks, and informs him that the creature assimilated Dune and his knowledge. He then admits that he is very concerned. Meanwhile, Libri confronts Noah, but is reluctant to use the gun on his approaching leader. Noah takes the gun from him and shoots him. He then takes his concealed hand out and recalls in horror at the sight of it, 
as it has changed to resemble the cocoon-like membrane of the creature in the solar stacks. Part 3. Noah smashes his hand repeatedly against the console as an automated message from the High Minister plays throughout the station, once again commending the crew for the great task that they have volunteered to undertake. Harry marvels at the idea of a member of the fairer sex being in such a high position of authority, but before Sarah Jane can rebuke him, Noel calls out for Vyra over the intercom. He orders Vyra to expedite the revival process, telling her to ignore the safety protocols as they are all in great danger. He orders her to take command as he has begun to fall under the influence of the entity possessing him, which he identifies as the Wirren. He then staggers away, leaving others to think on what they have just heard. The doctor starts talking to himself about the threat the Wirren poses to humanity, and then tells Vyra that they need to find Noah immediately. She starts to object, saying that she needs to continue with the revival process, but the doctor reminds her that Noah put her in charge, and he will need her to help talk to him. He tells her that Harry can oversee the revival process, and leaves Sarah Jane to help him. The doctor and Vyra make their way through the corridors, and encounter Noah, and they see the cocoon membrane has spread to cover most of his torso and face. He tells them to keep back, holding them at bay with his gun, and the doctor asks how long they have before the Wirren have fully matured. He tells them that it won't be long, and he throws down the gun and leaves. The doctor picks it up, whilst the dejected Vyra tells him that she and Noah had been assigned to be bonded when they arrived back on Earth. The doctor then leads her back to the cryogenics chamber. They arrive to find Sarah Jane and Harry talking to two revived men, technicians Rogan and Lysett, about what has been going on. The doctor gets Harry to help him pick up the dead Wirren so they can dissect it to try and find a weakness. Vyra then takes Rogan and Lysett to walk him through the revival process. The doctor tries to stop her, saying that the Wirren larvae will hatch long before the rest of the crew are revived, and those that are woken up will be used to create more Wirren. He tells her that they need to focus on finding a weakness so they can destroy them whilst they are in the vulnerable pupil stage, and Vyra agrees. The doctor returns to his companions, and Harry shows them the insides of the Wirren. They notice that it seems to convert carbon dioxide to oxygen, and the doctor says that it must live in space the same way a whale lives in the ocean. Vyra asks about how Noah was able to feel the maturation of the, the Wirren larvae, and the doctor says that he's attuned to their hive mind due to his symbiotic relationship with them. He then takes the outer layer of skin off the Wirren's eye and takes it to the control room. He hooks it up to a video monitor so they can see the last thing it saw before it died. Unfortunately, the power cable isn't strong enough, and he says he will connect his own brain to boost its power. Vyra says it is too dangerous, and she and Sarah Jane try to talk him out of it, but he says he has to risk it to find out how to defeat the Wirren and save humanity who he says are his favourite species. They start the process again, but Lysett hears a noise coming from the cryogenics chamber, and he and Rogan take, go to take a look. They see a grating torn open with a slime tray leading away from it. Suddenly, a Wirren larva charges at Lysett, who tries to lock himself into an empty pod, but he is too slow and the larva kills him. Rogan runs back to the control room and t- shuts the door, telling the others what happened. Vyra tells him to get weapons from the armoury, and Harry goes with him. Meanwhile, she and Sarah Jane watch on the monitor as through the doctor's brainwaves they see the Wirren arrive at the station and attacked by the defense system. They then see it open the control panel and sever the cables before approaching a cryostasis pod and taking out its occupant, who Vyra recognizes as Doom. Meanwhile, a former transformed Noah ambushes Harry and Rogan as they make their way back from the armory, but they manage to drive him back with the power of their weapons. Harry seals off the section before they continue back to the control room. In the control room, the larva tries to force the door open, and Sarah Jane unhooks the doctor from the machine. Vyra thinks that he has been possessed by the hive mind as he keeps repeating the word Wirren, but Sarah Jane stops her from shooting him as he goes back to normal. 
The larva manages to open the door just as Harry and Rogan arrive, and together with Vira, they shoot at it, but it seems to be immune to their shots. The doctor starts to walk to the larva in a trance, but is stopped by Sarah Jane. He tells them to fire Nora down at the larva, and it then falls to the floor and retreats back into the grating. Rogan closes the door again, and the doctor wonders why the larva are attacking now when they could wait until they matured and be invulnerable to the weapons. He then reveals that their best weapon is electricity, and says what the defence system used to kill the Queen. He then reveals that their best weapon is electricity, as that is what the defence system used to kill the Queen. He tells a surprised Harry that it was through sheer willpower that the Queen survived long enough to sabotage the system and lay its eggs in Dune. The Doctor then asks if they can electrify the infrastructure of the station, but Rogan says they can only do it from the main control centre, which is currently being watched by Noah. The Doctor then says they can reverse the directional circuitry on the transmit beds, and volunteers Rogan to go first as he appreciated the idea. The Doctor sends Harry next, but before he can send Sarah Jane, the power fails. He calls through to Rogan, who says where the fault is coming from, but he is suddenly cut off. The virus notices that the oxygen flow has stopped again, and the doctor says the worm don't need oxygen to survive. He says that he will go down to the section with the power failure and to try and fix it, saying it should be safe to go as the worm are probably in their pupil stage. He goes to the power room and finds a couple of worm cocoons and begins to fix the power supply. However, he is confronted by Noah, who finishes changing into a fully mature worm. Part 4 Vira and Sarah Jane appear and tell the doctor to run whilst Vera shoots Noah. Noah calls out to Vira and tells her to evacuate the station as soon as possible before the Wern hatch and kill them all in revenge. He explains that millennia ago, human colonists arrived to their breeding worlds in the Andromeda galaxy and drove them off their planets in a series of brutal wars. While the doctor asks why they want the station, he says the Wern intend to lay their eggs in the humans in the cryostasis pods. By doing this, they can assimilate all humanity's knowledge in order to become a stellar empire. As he speaks, the cocoons behind him start to hatch, and the Doctor leads Sarah Jane and Vira away, with Noah again telling her to leave. They arrive back at the control room where they are met by Harry and Rogan. The Doctor tells them about the Wern's plans, and Harry suggests that they leave in the TARDIS. The Doctor says that Vira won't abandon her duty, and they can't leave the Wern free to invest the rest of the crew. He then says their only chance at stopping them is to electrify the infrastructure around the cryogenics chamber, but they can't access the power supply due to the presence of the Wern. Sarah Jane starts to make a suggestion, but the Doctor cuts her off by saying that they need to bait out the Wern out of the power room. Virus asks what will stop them from simply turning off the power supply again, and the Doctor says they will have to electrify the switch, but Rogan says it will take too long. The Doctor then asks Sarah Jane what her suggestion was, and she says they can use the power supply from the transport ship docked at the station. Rogan says that that will work, but they will need to run a cable from the control room to the ship, but it will be exposed to sabotage by the Wern. The Doctor suggests using the power conduit tunnels, but Rogan says they are too narrow for them. Sarah Jane says that she could fit, and despite Harry's protests, the Doctor tells him to go attach the cable to the transport whilst he prepares the cryogenics chamber. Sarah Jane slowly makes her way through the conduit tunnel as the Doctor works on wiring the chamber. However, he is forced to take cover in an empty pod when a worm enters the chamber. Rogan guides Sarah Jane through the maze of conduit tunnels, but as she goes on, the claustrophobia and fear of the patrolling worm cause her to get stuck. However, the Doctor can hear her and shines a torch down the conduit tunnel to show her how close she is, but she says that she can't move and begins to cry. The Doctor again begins to berate her, saying that they shouldn't have trusted a useless girl like her. An infuriated Sarah Jane manages to get herself loose and crawls out of the conduit to give the Doctor a piece of her mind. However, 
He tells her that he is proud of her and she realizes that he only said those things to help her see past her fear and get her out of the conduit. The doctor then hooks up the power cable and signals for Rogan to turn on the power to the transport ship. The plan is successful as the Wern try to access the chamber but is shocked when it touches the door. The doctor says they will need to keep the power on as the Wern are not going to give up so easily. Suddenly, one of the Wern reaches through the open grating and tries to pull Sarah Jane through it but the doctor rescues her by shocking it with an exposed cable. A few moments later, the power comes back on in the station, and Noel calls out to them again, offering them safe passage from the station in exchange for access to the cryogenics chamber. The doctor refuses, and when Noel tries to reach out to Vira, he cuts him off by saying that Vira agrees with him. Noel tries to shut off the oxygen supply if their demands are not met, and again offers them safe passage away, saying that as a swarm leader, his commands will be obeyed. The doctor tries to reach out to Noel's humanity, but he refuses to listen. Meanwhile, Harry spots movement outside the transport ship through a security monitor, and Rogan says that the Wern are trying to access the ship. Vyra orders Rogan to start one of the engines to blast them away. However, a short while later, Vyra spots more Wern trying to access the ship by its external vents outside the station. Vyra informs the Doctor and says that once they get into the ship, it won't take them much time to reach the command section. The Doctor tells Rogan to cut the power so he and Sarah Jane can get out, and tells him to set the transport ship for automatic takeoff. The Doctor and Sarah Jane go and meet them. He tells Harry to take the girls into the station, whilst he and Rogan seal the ship with the Wern inside. The Doctor then tells Rogan to get inside whilst he sabotages the locking mechanisms, but Rogan, knowing that the blast from the engines will kill the Doctor, knocks him out and places him inside the station before sabotaging the locks himself. The transport ship takes off, killing Rogan in the process, and Vyra and the others watch it fly off into space. Sarah Jane and Harry dejectedly believe the Doctor to be dead, but he suddenly appears and tells them of Rogan's sacrifice. He says he also believes that Noah helped them by leading all of the Wirren onto the transport ship. This sentiment has proved to be correct when Noah calls them and says goodbye to Vyra moments before the ship explodes, as a result of him not setting the stabilizers correctly. Vyra then says that she will need to begin preparations for returning to Earth, but says that they will need to use the backup matter transmitter, which is only capable of sending three people to the planet at a time. The Doctor inspects it and says that the beam from the receiving end on Earth is faulty and offers to go check it out. He sends Sarah Jane to get his coat from the TARDIS in case the solar flares have adversely affected the weather, and she and Harry come back wearing poor weather clothing as well. Realising that they won't be left behind, the Doctor and the duo beam down to Earth as Vyra thanks them for all their help. End of the story. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. I made it. <laughs> you did. <laughs> uh, one thing as well, I was going to talk about this in trivia, but I'll say it now at the end of our uh, summary. Uh, last week we were talking about like what is Harry's title? Yes. Um, and he says it in the story, yeah. it's Surgeon Lieutenant. Yeah. So now we know. So that is the summary of the way, and we're going to go on to the trivia spot. What have you got for us this week? Cool. So, The Ark in Space. Air date is 25th of January to 15th of February 1975. Mm. The credited writer for this story is Robert Holmes. This is story 7 of 18 for Bob. I'm not going to list them all because you've all heard me list them mm-hmm. millions of times before. Or, well, six times before. This story is actually based on a script by our old friend, John Lucarotti. Really? Who we mentioned before wrote Marco Polo and the Aztecs, and the Massacre. First two, great. Third one, not so much. Good Doctor moments in it, though. Yeah. 
John Lucarotti and there was another writer as well whose name I've forgotten. They were initially charged with you know, write a sort of space station story. Mm. At the time, though, John lived on a boat in the Mediterranean and there was a postal strike afflicting the area. So he was basically incommunicado, right? They couldn't mm. get anything from him and there was no way to you know, have a timely consultation. So while he was fully paid for his work, he handed in a script and he was fully paid for it. Bob did a page one rewrite, retaining only the central concept that John had had in his original script. You know the way that they've been doing like the original draft version of the stories? (laughs) I'm coming to this now. So we will get a bit more insight into John's original script in the upcoming Big Finish story, Doctor Who, The Lost Stories, Doctor Who and the Ark. This is being adapted from John's original story. They have access to the original script or they got the original story brief and it'll be brought to life with Tom Baker as the fourth doctor, Sadie Miller as Sarah Jane and Christopher Naylor as Harry. According to the Big Finish website, it will be released in March of next year. And yes, I have already pre-ordered it. I'd actually be very interested to hear that because John does, for the most part, as I said, we said with the first two, he does fantastic historical stories. Mm. I'd be very interested to see how he had done a science fiction story. Yeah, I'll, I'll get. There's a couple of little uh, mentions um, in a couple of trivia points, and they give a little bit of insight into what was going on in John's brain. In context, it sounds a bit bonkers, but I th- I'm still looking forward to the big finished production. So, the director for the story is Rodney Bennett. This is the first of three stories that Rodney directed. We'll see his work again next week in the Santaran Experiment, and then again in the Mask of Mandragora. Rodney passed away in 2017. We have a producer change happening in this story. So Barry Letts is now finished as producer. And in his place, we now have Philip Hinchcliffe. Philip will serve as the producer for basically the rest of the season and then two more seasons of Tom. Philip is kind of, you know, most remembered for bringing a sort of darker feel to Doctor Who, making it a bit more gothic, more sort of hammer horror is probably you know the terms that get thrown out the mm-hmm. most in terms of Philip's run. And while this doesn't really do the whole hammer horror quite as much as his future stories will, a lot of people have you know, said that it's quite similar to Alien. Do you know there is a sort of space opera horror element to it. Mm. Um I suppose no? just a heads up, this is quite possibly my favourite era of who in terms of the, the tone because like you know me i'm a big horror fan and yeah there's just so many good s- story elements throughout mm. uh, hinchcliffe's run yeah philip also wrote three of the target books he also wrote a number of audio stories including the philip hinchcliffe presents series um and actually this is the last non-season opener to introduce a new producer so the season opener was robot mm-hmm. last week mm-hmm but that was filmed at the end of season 11. Yeah. So now Philip is coming in beginning of the production block for season 12, mm-hmm. which is actually story number two of season 12. Mm-hmm. So the working title for the story is Ark in Space, just without the word the. Um, we mentioned John Lucarotti originally submitted a story. His storyline included an ark, mm-hmm. an uninhabited earth, humans who had overslept, and aliens who had entered the ark in the meantime. So mm-hmm. the core... Core structure is still there. 
couple of differences are the race of the aliens mm-hmm. who Lucrati called the Delk. They are able to replicate instantly. The doctor went to the Ark on purpose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> probably, probably the biggest difference. You know, Harry not being to um, blame in that one. Um, this the idiot. John also gave the stories individual episode titles. So obviously when he was doing the show, mm-hmm. those were still there. And I am now so looking forward to the Big Finish version of this because I'm really curious as to where he got the names Buttercups, Puffball, Camellias, and Golfball. Those are the names of the episodes. I'm going to assume it's got something to do with the aliens that he had. I presume so, but still. Hmm. Interesting episode titles, John. (laughs) This would have been John's fourth script, and obviously it didn't happen, So, Hmm. but this is the final uh, mention of John we're going to get, so um, glad that some of it survived. In terms of the actual shooting script, Mm -hmm. or the script that Bob Holmes did himself, the the page one rewrite, originally in the final stages of the larval infestation, Noah's head was going to split open Oof. and have a, like a torrent of acid goo come out of it. Uh, it was cut because, as you can imagine, too graphic. Yeah. Conflicting reports on if it was ever filmed. There's certainly no footage. So if it was filmed, it was lost. Similarly, you may notice at one point in, I believe it's episode three. It might be. Yeah, it's episode three, I think. Um, The Doctor and Vira are in the corridor and they encounter Noah. Yeah. And he's sort of like the half green version of Noah. And there's kind of a weird edit where it cuts from a a shot of the Doctor looking on at Noah and Vira. Mm -hmm. And then it's just the Doctor glowering at a door and it looks like a a weird angle on the room and they're like it zoomed in on a gun at one mm. point yeah it just seems a little bit weird when you look at it the reason for that is originally um and apparently the scene was filmed noah begs vira to kill him and to end his agony basically um but philip hinchcliffe thought it was a bit too dark and decided to cut it and kenton moore who ended up playing Noah. He said that he was actually quite upset about that because a lot of what we know about Noah, a lot of Noah's character came through in that scene. And he thought it was kind of crucial to the way the rest of the story played out. Um, so he was a bit upset that that scene got cut. And it's, it's now lost. We don't have any visual record of it, though apparently it was filmed. That's a, that's a real shame because... That like that, I think that would have been a very interesting story element to add. Yeah, I think we might get into that a bit more when we talk about Noah as a character because Kenton Moore did, did a great job with Noah. Hmm. Um, we might get to talk a lot more about that. Also, at the end, um, originally the Wirren were going to go off into space, having been you know led by Noah hmm. in the shuttle, and they just left. Hmm. You know, people kind of assume that maybe that was Bob trying to allow for a sequel to the story or whatever. Uh, the BBC thought that it would frighten younger viewers that the Wirren were still out there. And that's why they had to kill them off. I have... I'm going to have thoughts on that, I think. In the, uh, mm. not, not in the overall, but when we actually talk about the Wirren themselves. Yeah. Um, a couple of other items here. 
So in part one, you may notice the opening title sequence is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like pinky green. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't last long. They never used it again. This <laughs> is a fun episode. The first episode, part one of this story, the only on-screen speaking characters are Harry, Sarah Jane, and the Doctor. We have a shot of Technician Dune, who doesn't speak. Mm-hmm. And then we have two voiceovers. One, the sort of uh, peaceful station introduction then the angry station go away this is an isolated area and then the voice of the uh, high minister but technically speaking they're not on set so this is the first story since edge of destruction where our core cast are essentially on their own with nobody else jesus that's a long time ago it was a long time ago Vira apparently was originally written to be black and possibly Haitian, but this was changed by the director. Um, this is actually... I don't want to get into too much of my overall, but this is a passing comment. This is actually one of the stories that you would have expected to have more of a multicultural cast. Yeah. And surprisingly, it doesn't. Yeah. Which, given some of the messaging, is concerning and I hope unintentional. Yes. Yeah. Some of um, Noah's motivations shall we say. Yeah. Um, particularly c- considering some of the previous stories that we've had that have yeah. been very good um, at least attempts at mm-hmm. uh, representation. So on to our cast. So as Vira, we have Wendy Williams. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Wendy. Her non-Who credits include The Eustace Diamonds, Knight Errant Limited, North and South, The Regiment, Zed Cars, and The Darling Buds of May. Wendy was married to Hugh David who directed The Highlanders and Fury from the Deep. Do you know actually kind of this is really weird, right? You mm-hmm. say that Vira is initially supposedly meant to be uh played played by a, a black woman. Mm-hmm. There's a very famous talk show host called Wendy Williams who actually in America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, hmm. Very different Wendy Williams. Very, 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 very different. Very different. Yeah. I will take our Wendy Williams any day of the week, thank you. Oh absolutely absolutely, absolutely. Uh Wendy passed away in two thousand nineteen. Rogan is played by a man with sadly the most backwards name ever. It's Richardson Morgan. Okay. Not Morgan Richardson. Richardson Morgan. He also goes by Rick. I'll be referring to him as Rick from now on. <laughs> the very famous surname clan. Crawford, have you seen Finley? I believe he's with Richardson. <laughs> uh, this is the second and final Doctor Who credit for Rick. We previously saw him as Corporal Blake in The Web of Fear. Mm-hmm. His non-who credits include Vendetta, Zedcars, Sherlock Holmes, Battle of Britain, Dixon of Doc Green, Rebecca, and Twelfth Night. Lastly, as Noah, or Lazar, or Lazar, how did they pronounce his name? They said Lazar. Lazar. Lazar, uh, Noah. Uh, We have, as I mentioned, Kenton Moore. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Kenton. uh, Though he does have an uncredited appearance in the Dalek Invasion of Earth. He was a Roboman. Oh, right. <laughs> Kenton's non-who credits include The Big Spender, The Doctors, Zed Cars, Watch All Night, and Dombey and Son. Now we have a bonus piece of trivia coming to us from our friend Paul over at Half Measures Podcast, who was messaging me over the weekend. He was talking about a uh, Tom Baker piece of trivia, because obviously we did the Tom Baker mm. section last week. So, Tom Baker's voice was voted as the most recognisable in the UK in 2006 after the Queen, or as the fourth most recognisable, sorry. Start again. He sent it to me like, you know, yeah. a summary of what it was. So, 
Tom Baker's voice was voted as the fourth most recognisable in the UK in 2006 after the Queen, Tony Blair, who was the then Prime Minister, and Margaret Thatcher, who was obviously a previous Prime Minister. In 2006, his voice was used by BT for spoken delivery text messages to landline phones. He recorded 11,593 phrases containing every sound in the English language to be used by text-to-speech services. Very interesting. So you could basically call a number and have Tom Baker be the voice on the other end. Hello there. (laughs) (laughs) Paul, thank you for the trivia and sorry I fucked it up. (laughs) Thank Thank you, Paul. We've actually, he sent me his impression. I've got to do this. Uh, sorry to do this, man, but you, you gave me the ammunition. He sent me his voice recording of his best Tom Baker imp- uh, impersonation. And yeah. it sounded like if Arnold Schwarzenegger and Tom Baker had a baby. That's what it would sound like. <laughs> it was glorious. You and I forgot a very important piece of Tom Baker's filmography last week. Did we? Yes. Tom Baker's Galactic Trivia Challenge. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. Yeah, I I stole this. I, I gotta say it. I uh, I was at a table quiz and I knew the people organizing it. And one of the prizes was this Tom Baker DVD, and they were just including it in a bunch of other DVDs. And I was like, no, sorry, I'm fucking, I'm taking it. So I took it. It has, like, it's got weird. One of the weirdest mechanics in it. Every so often, like, you get a wormhole question. And if even if for, you get for context, this is a DVD. Yeah, it's a D, it's a game. it's an interactive <laughs> DVD trivia game. But like, you come across a wormhole question. The only bollocksing thing is, like, even if you get the question right, the wormhole could send you back to the behind the person that you're beating. As which was the only way I could ever beat Paddy at this game because yeah. it was all like it was all science fiction questions from the fucking fifties and sixties and shit. Yeah, and I, I I'm just sat there going. Give me a Doctor Who question, you fucker. But it's brilliant, like because like Tom is like essentially like, you know, he's the he's the quiz master and he's like on a space station, like getting trying to get you back as soon as you possibly can. So it's like, oh it's a lot of fun. A space station not unlike Space Station Nova. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. I had completely forgotten about that. Yeah. <laughs> Paddy and I used to spend way too much time playing that game and he would beat me every time. Yeah, except for the times I I like oh, I hate remarkable questions. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was my only chance of winning. Yeah. Thank you, Paul, for your contributions. Yes. I don't know why I wasn't sent this amazing clip of <laughs> Paul's voiceover. I'll send it on to you. Yeah, Paul. But yeah, trivia spot over. Don't know how to segue into transition. So, Trisha, in the future, transition here. So we are going to do the character discussion next. So mm-hmm. as always, we have the Doctor, we have the companions of Sarah Jane and Harry, uh, also Vira and Rogan as our story-based companions. Prominent character, I put Noah as a prominent character. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah, and then the Wirren themselves as the villains. Wirren. I love that Tom just says like Wirren, like mm-hmm. when he comes out of the thing, because he rolls his R's. Oh, um, I actually have a point about that. So is it okay oh. if I go first? You may go first. So, Off the top. So, straight out the gate, okay? Two things I love about I love in Doctor Who. I love it when the Doctor says that he's afraid. Mm-hmm. And I love when Tom says it. Because his voice adds such a terrifying weight to the fact. Because mm. he makes a he makes a joke about, you know, he says like, Oh, 
the the weird like you know they digest their information i'm afraid and like sarah says oh, don't make jokes she goes you know when i say i'm afraid sarah i'm not making jokes and it's like the way he says it it's just like okay it's like stuff is actually serious and he says it better than any of like william uh, patrick or john could ever do because i don't know whether it's just like his tom's training or just his own take on the character but there's just such an actual terrifying weight to when he says that he's like f- afraid. Yeah, we we've kind of talked about that a bit in the past. In that, um, with Bill, we didn't really get a lot of fear. No, it was the it was the imperious defiance. Yeah, with Patrick, the fear was very present, but it was a very visual fear. Yeah, it was. You know, like it was all over his face, flailing and grabbing his arse and whatever. Mm. With John, again. There's not a lot of fear, and twice when he does say he's afraid, you don't feel, you don't really believe him. No, like John was a very because he was kind of the James Bond. Yeah, you never really thought John was in any danger. No, and even when he is in extreme danger, you don't think he's afraid of what's going to happen. No, and then we have Tom, where he's not as obvious as Patrick, but you believe it when he says it. Absolutely, like it's just the shiver, fa- the shiver factor. I think. Um, but yeah, it's just like it's that voice. It just adds so much to the the dialogue. Mm. Um, but like I think this is a great display from the you know from Tom as the doctor here. Like so, like we have the scientist, which is great. Mm. We've got the negotiator, like trying to reach out to to Noah's humanity, like uh, or even like just trying to like send the Wirren away, you know. Yeah. Um, I like that because that kind of leads into my point about the worm later on. Mm. Um, the doctor being a dick, but I'm going like I don't think he is as harsh as his previous incarnations would have been in the exact same scenario. I I have I have a note on this, but you can finish up your stuff on that. Yeah, no, like, like when he's like you know like you're basically calling her a useless girl and you know silly crying and all this type of stuff, and then he comes mm. when she comes out, he was just like saying I'm very proud of you. It's like. Mm. I think if the other ones had said it, if they were to say it, I don't think it would sound it would have sounded as genuine. No, that's not just me, you know, making excuses for at the moment my favorite doctor. Mm. It's a genuine belief I have in this particular incarnation. I think Bill may have gotten away with it. If it was like with someone like Vicky, I think Bill would have gotten away with it. Possibly only with Vicky, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah, I don't think he would have gotten away with Susan. No. No. Uh, and Barbara would have clocked him. Yeah, absolutely. So but and then I suppose like my last point here and I can think about it on my head is it's more so to do with Tom, but he's got mm. fantastic chemistry with everyone that he work that he's on screen with. Absolutely. Absolutely, I completely agree. So for me, like this story is uh, the story is such an interesting again, so many quotable lines, so many of my best bits of this story are just lines. It's like you know, what did you do, Harry? What, me? Well, there's only two of us here. And your name is Harry. Yeah. <laughs> I fucking love it. And obviously, the ham-fisted idiot. And... Yeah, like, there's so many good lines. And like a lot of them are, are, are Tom's. Like you know, A lot of people talk about his Homo sapiens speech. Or Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens. Yeah, which is a great speech. It's a great doctor sort of little monologue to himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many great lines in this. But a couple of things that do come across in this story that we 
saw little bits of last week, but not quite the mm. same way. The first is we see the introduction of the doctors moving Sarah to where he needs her to be. <laughs> without really being very particular about how he does it. Yeah. So when she's climbing down from the transport bed, mm-hmm. as opposed to like you know, capturing her under the arms and lifting her down, he just lifts her down as like she's like a little squished up ball and then just like <laughs> plonks her on the floor. <laughs> Or like when she's coming out of the conduit. Yeah. As opposed to, again, pulling her forward towards him. He turns his back to her and then just walks forward. So she just yeah. slowly like just slides out mm. of the thing, which is just so funny. It's something that Tom continues to do yeah. with Liz going forward. Um, what I wanted to talk about what you kind of hit on a while ago is his relationship with Harry. Yeah. So the doctor's relationship with Harry is a weird one. It's very different from any male relationship I think we've seen him have up until this point. Uh, Because we said last week that the most sort of comparative relationship is probably with Ian. Mm -hmm. Because Harry is a grown-ass adult. Yeah. Um, You know, and so is Ian. But, like, we can see here that, like, Harry clearly frustrates the shit Mm. (laughs) out of the Doctor. But it never lasts long. There's very clear frustration and anger in the moment, in response to the specific action. But once that moment has passed, that anger and frustration also passes. It doesn't stick with him. Like, we see... I don't know. We see, like, this Harry, someone like Harry as a story-based companion from time to time. And the Mm. Doctor has no problem, like, you're fucking, like, ripping them to pieces verbally or anything like that mm. whereas with Harry like it, Harry feels the type of person the Doctor would normally fucking make a mockery of but for some yeah. reason he just seems to tolerate him and it's just like yeah like he gets frustrated in the moment and in that moment like we've, we see it several times in the story there's several glares that are sent Harry's way um, and like you know he's clearly very upset at Harry just pushing random fucking buttons he knows nothing about um, and we will see this in future stories as well just a little bit of foreshadowing there but um, it never lasts long. No, it lasts for the moment that it impacts, but he doesn't carry it with him. Like you don't hear, you know, the doctor you know, like halfway through the story, like when Harry's saying, or like towards the end, where Harry's like, "Why don't we just leave?" Being like, "Well, had you not gone futzing with anything, we would have left ages ago." Mm. But because of you, Sarah got trapped in there, and then she went on the fucking bio bed, and then she like he doesn't hold any of that against him. No, it's. In the moment, what the fuck are you doing? And then when the moment has passed, it's, you know, again, one of my favorite lines, you know, Harry here is only qualified to work on sailors. Yeah. I just think it's <laughs> a brilliant line. Do you know, or like, you know, you don't mind losing your other shoe, mm. you know? Um, so I think that's great. I love his dynamic with Vira. I think mm. that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It reminded me a little bit of Astrid. Uh, yeah. in some ways like a cross between Astrid and the female controller of the wheel in space yes yeah. um, but I thought they had a really good dynamic they did um, we get to see um, him him sciencing it up like you said but this is an interesting thing about Tom's Doctor in comparison to John's his science isn't flashy he just does it. He doesn't make a song and dance about it. It's very MacGyvery. Yeah, but it's also he. He just does it. Yeah. Do you know? Like he doesn't draw attention to it. 
It's just he he starts doing something. He's like, "What are you doing?" Oh, I'm I'm fixing the thing. Mm. It's not like you know, one moment while I go and fi-. like. There's no. It's just it's just what he does. Yeah. Do you know he, he just does it and it's fine. Um, one of my favorite moments though from Tom, and like, there are so many favorite moments from Tom in this story, but one of my favorites is, um, when they first meet Vira, mm-hmm. and they're asking Vira if she can wake up Sarah, and Vira asks the question, "Is she of value?" Yeah. And Harry kind of loses the rag a small bit, understand because kind of, what the fuck are you on about? <laughs> She's a human being. What sort of question is that? And the doctor simply says, "The answer is yes." Mm. He doesn't get upset with the question. He doesn't care what the question was. He doesn't care what Byron means by of value. It doesn't matter. The answer is yes. Like, he doesn't try to explain how they see everyone as being a valuable person. He doesn't bother. He's just like, the answer is yes. I think as well, like, that there's probably a bit of knowledge by the doctor, like, you know, like, at this stage in, you know, humanities. Is that is she a value? So like, does she serve like a high function? Which is like, so mm. that's the thing now. Is a case of like, while we would put the value on a single human life, there's like, well, what are they contributing to the overall grander scheme? Mm. So yeah, he just kind of yeah. goes, yes. But I love the fact that like, from the doctor's perspective, it's like, it doesn't matter what your definition is, the answer is yes. Do you know which? Which I I thought that was a great moment because he does it completely. He looks he looks terrified. It's just this stony somewhat terrified expression on his face it's just the answer is yes like i don't care how you define it the answer is yes um which you can take to mean no matter what you say i will always say yes or it can mean by whatever way you determine value sarah will always be valuable i think it's the the latter i think that's... i think it's the latter too you can read it as the former in terms of like stop asking her for a definition it doesn't matter because mm. no matter what she says we're going to say yes anyway because we want yeah. sarah back but I like to think about more as being the latter of, by whatever measure you can think of, the answer will always be yes. If it had been someone else other than Sarah, I would possibly say the former. But no, like I'm going to say the latter. Yeah, me too. So speaking of Sarah, shall we move on to our companions? I believe we should. So, you know, she isn't hugely present in the first two episodes, but that's not a mm. bad thing. Because it, it one it gives the story a chance to grow, like for us mm. to kind of get them the setting and the stakes and everything like that, and plus we get a chance to know Harry better. And when yeah. you have an, when you have a pre-established companion, sacrificing time for that pre-established to get us to know the new one, it's not a bad mm. thing at all. Huh? Uh, but for the the latter two episodes that she is very present in, uh, some very great Sarah Jane moments. Like her intelligence, because she's the one that says about the transport ship's um, yep. engine. She, and, and like, I love the way, like, that even though when the doctor just cuts across her, she's like, I'm I'm waiting. You know, you're, you're, <laughs> go, you're going to circle back to me, so I'm just going to wait here. I love that part. Um, her bravery, because in the sense of like, we're not going to be able to fit through those conduit tunnels. And she's like, I could, you know, I'm yay big. Mm, uh, that wide. <laughs> yeah, I'm that wide. And like, that is, um, given the scenario that they're in, it's a very fucking risky thing to put yourself through, you know? Also, I wonder if when she volunteered, she remembered that their conduits are shaped like triangles and not rectangles. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, that wide gets, like, less wide. 
further off the coast. And I know like that there are people out there that we use that out of context. Mm-hmm. Like they'd use that scene out of context as their oh, they're stuck. I can't go forward or back. Yeah, like I've lost yeah. the will to live type fucking mm-hmm. shit. But that they'd use that scene out of context to kind of back up the statement that classic companions just screamed and wailed and all that kind of jazz. Mm-hmm. Speaking from an experience of where I was in something very similar to that. I'm not mm. an overtly claustrophobic person, but in I that am. yeah, but in that scenario, you like when the fear is there, you you start to swell and you start to panic the more you start to swell. So it's like from experience, it's a very fucking tough situation to be in. So if you want to pick, mm. if you want to pick on someone that acts that way in that scenario, fuck off. Yeah. Um, huge alien vibes though from it, you know, with Bishop fucking shuffling along. Yeah. Like, it's it's okay. It's funny to think that five years before the first alien and then 11 years and like this is five years before alien and 11 years before aliens yet there's so much oh yeah the 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 setup um is very alien Mm. um even the sense that like the only of the crew we meet only one survives which is vira yes Uh, obviously the rest are in stasis but you know that doesn't matter um also, like the aliens connection, like you said, we have it with Sarah Jane going through the conduit, which yeah, you could also say that's a bit like Die Hard or whatever. But it's more true with the Bishop connection because it's running power. Yeah, running power, and it's this very small like um thing. We also get it as go jump ahead, Rogan. I'm going to come back to him and an aliens connection as well when we get to him. But like, even visually, like the. Um... Like finding like the 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 membrane sack in the mm. the pod, or a great visual moment where they see all the women outside. It's like when fucking yeah. Hicks looks up into the, um, mm. oh, what you call into it? The it yeah, into the vents, and you yeah. just see them all crawling there. It's like just like visually, there's so many parallels here, you know. And you, mm. you kind of have to wonder: is there some element to it? No, it could just be parallel thinking, but fuck it. Mm. Um, but. The other kind of, I suppose, main point about Sarah Jane and this is like her low tolerance for Harry's BS. It's like, you know, call me old girl and I'll spit in your eye. Or when he makes his comment about like like a member of the fairer sex becoming the high minister and she's like about to really... And he even said, oh, he says that that should, like, you know, your, like that should do your cold chauvinist, female chauvinist heart the world yeah. the good. And it's just like, yeah, dude, you're pushing your fucking luck here with her, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, like I think for for someone that's only in the story for half of it, mm. she's great. Also, I forgot mm. like how like her weird loopy eye or her, her weird loopy face with like her eyeshadow makes her look really fucking sinister. <laughs> yeah, so the first thing I always write, I always think about Sarah Jane in the story is the eyelashes. Mm. She has the most amazing eyelashes. Um, also like. Again, this is sort of jumping ahead. The things Elizabeth Sladen could do with her eyes. <clears throat> just a look. Mm. And depending on the story, you're either scared shitless of her. Yeah. Or the other side. Um, uh, you know, there were certain points where her presence seemed a bit, you know, superfluous. Mm-hmm. Or like surplus to requirements, particularly uh, once she'd woken up in episode two, kind of towards the end of episode two. She's just sort of there 
and like even like she goes to go with the doctor and Vira and or she goes to go with the doctor and yeah she goes to go with the doctor and Vira and you know the doctor's like oh no stay with Harry and she's like mm-hmm. I don't want to fucking stay with Harry like I see that they didn't know what to do with her once yeah. they'd woken her back up um, which is a bit unfortunate like because you know while yes it gives Harry a chance to develop and even like the bits of Sarah like on her own are fantastic as well. Like the mm-hmm. bits in episode one are phenomenal. Um, but you know there are times when she seems a bit surplus to requirements. But there's some again great moments. A lot of it quote based. Yeah. Like just a trip to the moon, he said, just to prove to Harry. <laughs> Where the fuck are we now? <laughs> or like, I love the way she's like, I hate brandy. As if they'd be like, what the hell would you give me that for? Only because I can relate. Yeah. Um. Or one of my favorites, you know, how do you think I'm doing? Twist. <laughs> Her dynamic with Harry is so yeah funny because like she has like a zero percent threshold for him, and she has, she has no problem. I think it's just because it just yeah, it's you and me in many ways. Not all the time, obviously, but like there are moments where I'm like, yeah, that's me, me and Patty. Um, <laughs> And I'm sure there are moments where you feel feel the opposite is true as well. But um, and also like you know, like when she's coming out of the things like you, know, just to wait till like get out. I don't need your help. He's like, yes, you do. Yes, you do. It's fine. <laughs> but again, he just slides her down. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, you know, and she's still being there. Like I mean, even though yeah, she spends a lot of the story being reactionary. What's that? What's this? What do you mean? Screaming her head off and whatever. We see time and again in this story her willingness to sacrifice herself, or at least to put herself in harm's way, for the doctor. Yeah. When Vira is going to shoot him because he keeps repeating "we're in, we're in, we're in" over and over again, Sarah's like, "Don't you fucking dare!" Like, what the fuck? Like, no. Um, you know how upset she gets. You know, earlier in the story when um Noah shoots him. Mm-hmm. And she's like, Harry, do something. Like, you're a doctor. Do something. Because obviously, I mean, to her, I mean, he's had a couple of near-death experiences and he did die already in the last couple of weeks. But also, like, when the doctor, you know, sort of comes to and you've got, like, the Wirren larvae or whatever trying to come through the door and he starts walking towards her. She literally just jumps in front of him and starts pushing him him back. back. And you know, he's clearly no problem whatsoever standing up for him and protecting him from himself, mm-hmm. um, which is great. Um, also, her performance in this forms one half of the most heart-wrenching Doctor Who fan edits ever made. So, for fans of the revival era of the show, uh, a lot of fans find the end of season two of the mm. revival era, or series two, Particularly heart-wrenching. Yeah. And some person decided to take that music and the David Tennant side of that scene and pair it with Sarah's performance when she gets trapped in the room and the air is running out. Yeah. It is the most heart-wrenching fan edit I think I've ever seen. It is fantastic. I will share it on Twitter when this goes out. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's amazing. So, like for me, also I forgot one one bit I loved, yes. which is on like the the, the sleepy bed thing, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Yo, 
Hello, uh, whatever. I <laughs> just comes up and she waves. <laughs> she just waves at the like the strange voice from the ceiling. <laughs> Hello. Um, but yeah, so I think not her strongest performance, I'll be honest. Um, I don't know if it's going to make it on the list for top three, but definitely far from a bad performance and far from a bad story. No, it's it's a middling performance. But again, as I said, w- with what we were, what we got as a result of it, it's not a bad yeah. thing. Yeah. No, I agree. I just, the one thing I'm conscious of now going forward is... You know, last week we discussed how it was a lot of the Doctor and Harry, or like the Doctor with the unit group, which included Harry, and Sarah Jane by herself. And here we had, you know, basically most of episode one is the Doctor and Harry and Sarah by herself. Um, and, you know, Sarah not really getting to be part of the group as much. Um, I am hoping that we're, you know, like from a sort of analytical point of view, I want to see that I want to see us coming to that curve now. Yeah. You know, make them a trio. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't need to be you know Sarah by herself and the two lads mm-hmm. off together. Yeah, she does fine by herself. She does great by herself. She's fantastic. But I do want to start seeing more of a group. And it's going to be interesting to see if this continues for how long does it continue for? Yes, definitely, definitely. So I suppose we might as well talk about the third part of this triumvirate. <laughs> Oh, Harry, Harry, Harry. Does it make me a bad feminist that I still love Harry? No. And like, I'll admit, right, that I love the guy. Hearing his thoughts on a war, a female world leader, like potentially opens up a huge spider web that I'm not fucking prepared to discuss. <laughs> because I looked up, right? Mm. And prior to when this, no, unit dating controversy aside... Say if we mm. just say if we'll do like a a an, a time frame like a what is it like a fucking date for date thing where mm. it's like they leave nineteen seventy five. Yeah. In the world, I believe there have been four female heads of state, like in terms of prime minister. Mm. Right. No, they were in Israel, India, Ceylon, and one other country that I can't think of off the top of my head. Right. But it's like okay if. And like those would be very big appointments throughout the world, especially you know Britain with you know its connection to India and stuff like that. And it's like, what would Harry's thoughts have been about those people being elected to prime ministers in those countries? I'm not particularly sure. I want to know the answer to that. So let's just move aside from that aspect of it. Yeah, like his way of thinking and speaking and being is incredibly old fashioned, but you can't help but love him. He's like a puppy. He's a puppy who gets easily excited, easily distracted. (laughs) And you're like, you know, Harry, I've spoken to you several times about piddling on the floor. And he's looking at you going, who piddled on the floor? (laughs) (laughs) You did. You did. (laughs) But you can't help but love him. I think Harry has some good moments in this as well. Um... I love how, like, on the back foot he is with Vyra. Mm-hmm. I think Vyra takes him completely, like, shit. Because, like, Sarah is, you know, from a contemporary time. Mm-hmm. Do you know? So, he he knows that he can sort of, like... I think he does it a little bit to sort of rile her up. Yeah. Do you know? Like, wind her up and see how far she goes type thing. But with Vyra, you can tell he's kind of like, oh, well, I'm... uh, What? And, like, it's like having this, like, 
you know, very strong. Who doesn't? She doesn't yell. Like Sarah no. yells from time to time, and like gets visibly very angry at them. But Varys just has this like at the start has this cold and questioning and calculating mm. thing. And you can tell he's kind of like, um, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but like he clearly, he clearly cares. And this is the thing about Harry is that he is like that puppy, but like he's an adorable puppy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that he went around the entire four episodes with no fucking shoes on. Yeah, I f- keep forgetting that. <laughs> yeah, this point where you see him like coming down steps just in his socks. <laughs> <sighs> Poor Harry. Poor Harry. Um, one other thing that I thought was actually pretty cool uh was it was nice to see his medical uh, skills being brought mm. in to like and like okay it's you know he's helping revive the rest of the crew but it actually plays into the plot because he's the one that dissects the Wern queen yeah also he has like his little um the eye thing the light thing that doctors use to like look in your eye or look in your ear does he just keep that in his pocket possibly <laughs> like I know the doctor pulls a, a, a cricket ball out of nowhere yeah but like Harry was like dressed like if he was going out for dinner or going to the yacht club like you said last week and he just keeps this in his pocket does he have a stethoscope in his other pocket I don't know maybe it's just one of those things you know he's always prepared for the question is there a doctor in the house <laughs> yes yeah. yes I am <laughs> sorry but I'm only qualified to work on sailors <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you were making a point and then I interrupted. Yeah, no, it's just like, uh, like he actually, like he's the one that dissects the Wirren Queen. Like, so, mm-hmm. and like he's the one that like takes a look at the anatomy. So, like, mm-hmm. if that's him using his skill, which we actually talked about last week, yeah. would it be a factor and would it drive the plot? And here it does. Yeah. The other thing as well is, and this is sort of, you can see it as Harry being old fashioned. It's actually Ian Martyr being very, very sweet. So, when the doctor and Harry find Sarah passed out in the room, mm-hmm. he props her up against the wall and whatever. And then once the air gets going, the doctor's like, oh, put her on the bed a bit closer to the vents. And Elizabeth Slade was very aware of the fact that she was wearing a very short dress. And the camera was pointed directly at the base of the bed. Mm. And she obviously Harry was going to or Ian was going to pick her up and place her on said bed. And you'll notice when you watch it, he very carefully makes sure her skirt stays down. Yes. And that was Ian doing Liz a favour. <laughs> so no one saw her knickers. <laughs> Which, when you know it's Ian doing it, yeah. it's like, oh, that's very sweet. Yeah. When you realise that Harry was trying to be very like particular with her, mm-hmm. when you consider the doctor just sort of fucks her wherever she needs to go, yeah. it's very, it is very sweet. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. Um... Of course, then his his medical treatment is to give her a glass of brandy. Mm. But as you say, like it's like that's kind of evidence more so that his old girl talk is just to rile her up, you know. Yeah, it's also it's also just the way he speaks. Mm. Yeah, like the way people talk now. Like I call everyone guys. I don't mean that I think mm. you're male. I just call everyone guys, whether they're male or female. Um, mm. Yeah. Or you know, what are you doing there, lad? Like calling everyone lad yeah. or something. It's, it's just it's just his way of, of speaking. It's just funny that it, it, it gets her cold so much. Yeah. Oh. So, now we have our story-based companions of Vyra and Rogan. Mm. So, I think Vyra goes on some huge roller coaster in such a short space of time. 
Vyra is one of the few supporting characters that we actually see go through character development within the story. Mm. Oh, definitely. And given the fact that she's actually only in three episodes, because she's not in episode one, mm-hmm. she goes through a lot of development in three episodes. Yeah, like, she's... She's thrown into... like They're thrown into a scenario that they could not have conceivably thought of beforehand, mm. you know? Because they thought, like, you know, oh, like, um, I suppose the human government and uh, the science scientists mm. that lead the whole thing were like, in 5,000 years they're going to wake up and so on. So they're clearly like everyone's assigned task is just that it's their assigned task. Mm. So she then gets promoted to a position that she's not prepared for. Like She's not on the command track. This isn't, as we talked about last week, this isn't Starfleet. Yeah. You know, where even though Deanna is like technically a bridge officer, right, or Beverly's a bridge officer because mm. she's a commander, like uh, you know, Beverly would be could be expected to take over the bridge at any given moment. Whereas Vyra wouldn't have been taught to be put into mm. a command thing. Vyra doesn't um, wear red. Yeah, she doesn't wear red. <laughs> um, and then, like she says, after that scene, that's cut mm. where like. It would have added so much more to what I'm going to say now. The scene that's cut about, uh, and she says that they were chosen to be pair bonded. You get the impression, okay, that that means that they're matched together for like to produce the most proficient or Mm. efficient offspring. So it's not necessarily a love match. But as the story goes on, and it's the same for Noah, you actually see that there is a love between the two. There really is. And I think that's probably one of the things that like, Vyra's a character where the more you watch her, with each passing minute, if not with each passing episode, you like her more and more. Mm. To the point where at the end, you absolutely love her. I think she's amazing. Yeah. She's one of my favourite supporting characters in all of Dark Oh, Hugely. Vyra is a great character. She really is. But she starts off incredibly cold and clinical. But what we see is her humanity coming out the more she loses Noah. For every mm. piece of Noah that disappears, we see more of Vyra's humanity. Not that Noah in his previous, like in his own self, was keeping Vyra cold, but you can see her heart breaking. Yeah. It, it's like the realisation that, that, you know, the pair bonding between them, it, it, it actually between them, there is a love there. Yeah. And, like, so, like, and she has this remarkable strength of will to keep going forward with everything that's been thrown at her and now the doctor speaks for her quite a lot Mm. after um noah starts to like uh, especially after he becomes a fully mature woman right Mm. and you could say that oh it's sexist like you know she's can speak for herself but i think it's a i think it's actually more so the doctor's very protective of her because in my head right Mm. he knows that she is barely keeping it together and she needs to keep it together for them to survive so he's taking the terrible choice of mm. having to speak to noah away from her so that she can actually be effective yeah i completely I agree i think uh, yeah. i i read that the completely same way um the Wirren is using vira's feelings for noah against her mm. yeah and even Noah is using Vyra's experience, you know, feelings for Noah against her in many ways. 
And like you said, like she is on a knife's edge in terms of the responsibility that she's taken upon herself and whatever. And I see it as the doctor being like, no, you don't get to hurt her anymore. Mm-hmm. He's not going to let them hurt, like them being the Warren and Noah, hurt Vira. Because he knows that she will do the right thing. She like, she does agree with him. She never contradicts him. Do you know, she never like no. gets off in a huff that like, oh, stop speaking for me. She will agree with him. And it will break her to agree with him and to say the things to Noah that he's been saying. So I saw it completely the same way. I didn't see it as um, a sexist thing. I didn't see it as anything like that. I saw it as him protecting someone and allowing her to maintain the strength she needs to do her job. There's a couple of outstanding moments for me uh, with Vira. Like you said, the one you mentioned there where after what was clearly going to be a very emotional pleading from Noah to kill him, where she just says, you know, we were to be pair bonded in the new in the new life. And just the way she says it, because she realizes now she's lost him forever. Yeah. Do you know? And what is, like, even given the fact that up until this point it's been very clinical, what's her purpose now? Without Noah, who is she in the new life? Mm. You know, what will her role be? She had a role before. She's now a commander. But what's her role once the command decisions are done? Because Noah's gone. Yeah. And like, you know, you, you kinda wonder like what had she planned for herself. When she first sees Noah um as a Wirren in the solar stacks, you know, when he's talking to the doctor, then Sarah and um Vira come in. Mm. And Noah starts talking to them. She kind of crumples down on the step and is sort of clinging to the railing, listening yeah. to Noah's voice coming from this creature. And again, he's there to her being like, you know, Vira, take the ship. Vira, do this. And like, she just sort of crumples down on herself. And we see mm-hmm. it more later on. When she's in the shuttle with Rogan, when she's giving commands, you know, you know, I can't remember what the commands are, but it's like open fuel injector four. Yeah. You could tell that all of her strength is gone. There's no mm. emotion behind what she's saying. There's no urgency behind she's just Yeah, do that. And that. And and she just looks so small in that chair. That because she's obviously they're torching these women with the engines. Yeah. And she's like, Am I gonna have to do this? To Noah. And it's it's so good. And then for it to come at the end, you know, when she's like, you know, Noah had to have known what he was doing and realizing that Noah sacrificed himself for them. And then obviously, you know, her being like, you know, I have to save my people, blah, blah, blah. When we get to her smile at the end, when she accepts the bag of jelly babies, and you're like, mm. that is the most character progression I think we've seen in any character that isn't a main character. I think even with the yeah. main character, we've never seen that much progression in that short a period of time. No, because again, this is only a few hours if you think about it. Like, yeah. you know, um, I, I'm really annoyed because I would love to have seen that scene because I know you, I don't think you ever watched it, mm. but uh, David Cronenberg's uh, version of The Fly mm. at the end has a very similar. Now, 
um, in that movie, the um, the main character, he has progressed so far into the flyhood that he can't actually verbally speak, mm. but he takes like a shotgun and he puts it against his head and Gina Davis's character like mm. then kind of shoots him. But it's like the humanity is still there telling you to just like, you know, shoot me before I get taken over type thing. I need to check something. I'm going to ask mm-hmm. you to hold on a minute. I need to check something. So Ian Martyr did the target novelization for the story. Mm-hmm. And I want to see if he put it in. Um, trying to remember where it is in context. It is in the book. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So he threw the paralyzer at Vyra's feet. For pity's sake, kill me. Kill me now, he pleaded. His voice barely intelligible. Then he reeled back with an appalling shriek into the airlock, as with a crack like a gigantic seed pod bursting. His whole head split open, and a fountain of green froth erupted and ran sliding down the radiation suit, burning deep trenches into the thick material, and the shutter closed. Fuck me, I need to read this book. Yeah, Jesus, that 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 was harrowing to listen to. Um, yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm adding this to my TBR TBR list. I'm sure I probably read it when I first bought it, but that was about twelve years ago. So, but back to I suppose question thing at hand. Vera, great supporting character. Definitely, and like I said, I think if we exclude. The break, because I thought he was great in in his introductory stories. I think Vira is probably one of my favorite, if not my fi- my favorite supporting character. That's I think she's awesome. Cool. That's kind of that's pretty cool. That that is uh, more than Sir William Dupre, which you know you held <laughs> in high esteem for a very long time. Um, so now we have Rogan. Okay, I have a question for you. Yes. How did Rogan get to be part of the Ark? I say this because Vira and Noah make a big deal about how the Doctor and Harry speak and how they sound like regressives. I hardly think, think someone going, going, let's put a stitch up. Let's put a stitch up. That doesn't sound... Yeah, that doesn't sound very... <laughs> it doesn't really gel with the other, with the rest of the crew who are very sort of perfect in particular like Lysit the other fella just sort of nods along to Rogan like, yeah, yeah whatever you say Rogan but like he, he comes across as a much less panicky and no offence to him perhaps more competent version of Hudson from Aliens yeah no, I, 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 I think he is the Hudson character um, also I think maybe technicians and engineers are given a pass you know for their like their colourful language um, Rogan is like He's a character that I think I've made um, comments about characters that we've seen in the last couple of stories. He's a character that defies your expectations because you think at the start he's going to be like the token coward that's going to like, mm. well, no, maybe we should negotiate with them. Or like, you know, why are we risking our lives for this type of mm. shit? But he adapts very quickly to the scenario and he's he's very courageous like and he mm. he has no problem whatsoever like offering solutions and suggestions and you know 
he, he's not a hindrance throughout the story. No. I love as well, like, as soon as the doctor talked about releasing clamps or whatever, mm-hmm. you can tell in Rogan's face he knew exactly what it was. Oh. And exactly what it meant for him. And, like, that's another thing I love about the fact is that is he could very easily let the stranger die, you know? Mm. Like, he's not part of the arc, he's fucking some Joe Blow, like, you know, might as well use him for mm. all the work. It's like, no, he is, he makes the ultimate noble sacrifice by yeah. making sure the doctor is safe and then he effectively sentences himself to death. Yeah, I know when he, like, you know, he's going on about, like, oh, no, no, doctor, like, you'd have to deal with the union the and his costume, and he's like, he's like, he's like, that's my job. Yeah. It's very... You know, and like, it's, it's... It's very Armageddon. It's very Bruce Willis and Armageddon thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, it's very... You know, I kind of... I was, I was trying to... As we as were watching, I was trying to figure out all the colours. Because mm-hmm. obviously Star Trek is very colour-coordinated. Yeah. Um, Rogan is very Starfleet. He is. He is. But in the kind of Miles O'Brien type of Starfleet of what they ever live with shit... Fuck it, let's go on and fix it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think he's noble, he's self he's true, he's a true person, mm. do you know? Like, in contrast to Noah and Vira, and even the others, you know, he's not, you, know, you get the feeling he's not in it for the perfect world. Do you know? No. He was clearly brought on board, like you said, for his engineering skills, but he's not first tech either. No. That was June. Mm-hmm. So he's a tech. Yeah. Do you know, but he's not first tech. He, that was June's job. He's the everyman. That's what mm-hmm. he is. He's the everyman. And yeah, and I think you know the actor who plays him. They play it so well. Hmm. Like Rick plays it so well. Oh, he plays it brilliantly. And like, if you think about like some contrasting characters, like you know, we said that you know he was in the Web of Fear as, as Blake. We didn't really get to see that much of him, but like. We also had that other lad in the fucking Web of Fear. Um, fucking what's his face? Which one? Driver the Evans. annoying one. Driver Evans. Yeah. Do you know who is also like, you know, what the hell is this? And whatever. But Evans is a coward. Yeah. A self-admitted mm. coward. Whereas Rogan is just like, what the fuck did I agree to? This was a stupid idea. What the hell am I doing here? Mm. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and very much the Hudson side of that but in comparison like where Hudson in Aliens loses his shit mm-hmm. Rogan just gets on mm. what am I going to do cool I can do that yeah which kind of it's kind of explains maybe that maybe that is how he got in the arc but even though he does have regressive tendencies shall mm. we say he gets the job done he's like <laughs> do you know he kind of reminds you of you know the fucking Again, it's another alien analogy, I suppose. The one prisoner that survives in Alien Tree, because he's the mm. he's the one that kind of he's like the one that kind of like roses the guys like you. Oh, fuck it, we're all here to die anyway, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, a lot of alien overtures in this. <laughs> also, Alien Three, underrated film. Oh, hugely. I... I will never forgive it for the beginning, ever, ever. Mm. But what comes after that? Underrated, I think. Oh, like, I'm. I am a huge advocate for alien tree because mm. it has one of my favorite sequences ever load of cockneys taunting the piss out of an alien you know playing fucking hide and seek it's brilliant <laughs> plus it's got peace possible weight in it as well so um yeah. yeah no very underrated part of the trilogy mm. 
It's a quadrilogy. <laughs> oh, so, sorry. I don't. I don't particularly care for resurrection or whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> no, <I do. laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that 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 is that movie is the definition of fucking cashing in our franchise. Oh yeah, by far. Yeah. Um. So on to prominent characters. Yes, Noah and poor Commander Noah. So now that we've actually read the scene, yeah, the. Um, I think it just reinforces my... For me, anyway, that reinforces my opinion of Noah. So I've always thought that Noah was a bit weird. So at the beginning, Rabira is cool and clinical. Noah is a bit like the quote-unquote colonists um, that we had in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Ruth and Adam. Oh, yeah. No, I can see that. Very much in the sense of, like, they can't be allowed to, you know pollute the genetic pool because they've been here for five minutes mm. like they're not going to bang someone and get the pregnant in five minutes and destroy everything you're trying to do I don't even know if it's like you're stick, sticking it in but I think it's more the case of the mentality well I think he was going specifically the genetic pool is what, what he says oh yeah because he they... says the genetic pool and Vira's like you know there was like a seven percent whatever um, and so he goes full on like fuck you Stuns the doctor. Like, we think he's shot him dead, but stuns the doctor or whatever. But the thing about Noah is that Noah is such a traumatized character. Mm. And Kenton Moore, I, I've watched an interview with Kenton before. Kenton got the script. And he was like, oh my god, this is amazing. You have this tortured man losing himself mm. to this alien entity. And then he turned up on set and they wrapped his hand in bubble wrap. Which kind of took a little bit from what he was trying to do in his mind. Because mm. the scene where he's in the control room and he's battling his mm-hmm. hand, he had sort of imagine like the hand reaching out and he'd sort of practice it all of trying mm. to hold it back and the idea of he doesn't have control of it and instead he had this not really movable green mm. thing yeah. on his arm and he felt it looked a bit silly mm. I actually don't mind the green that much I, like, I, I, I was going to save it for the overall but yeah. I wish that I could actually fucking speak to him and say your concerns or whatever completely unwarranted because I know that this particular story comes with the reputation of all oh, the fucking the bubble wrap hand mm. and you know the bubble wrap half covering you don't fucking care his act, care. his acting his his act and phenomenal. his acting and the it's, script and everyone sorry mm. even Tom and Wendy's performances as well mm. you fucking see past everything because of what's being portrayed. Yeah, and like the thing with with his portrayal of Noah is mm. that I would have loved for that scene to be in there. Mm. Um, I said I'm I'm at least going to read that scene fully later on mm. um, this evening myself. Um, but you get it in everything else. Mm. Just like vi- we see virus humanity coming through, the more he slips away, his own humanity comes through. The more he's lo- he the more he loses it. Yeah the more we see that he even had it to begin with. Mm. And you can tell, like you said, that he has a very genuine 
affection and love mm-hmm. for Vira. Do you know? Mm-hmm. And you know the fact that he has had to put all of this pressure on her. Mm-hmm. But also, he clearly trusts her. I mean, yeah, she's like first tech, or mm-hmm. she's first medical officer, whatever, whatever the med tech. Mm-hmm. But like, she's not a ship's tech. No. Do you know? Should the first medical officer really be the next one in charge? Should it not have been Lysette or Rogan? Mm-hmm. Who are the more technical part? Again, going back to your analogy, you know, with Beverly and whatever. Like, Beverly is a commander. She's technically the third highest ranked member of the crew. Mm. But generally speaking, it goes Picard, Riker, Data. Mm-hmm. Is sort of the way that goes. Yeah. So, who was the first officer? Mm-hmm. Was it Dune? And then after Dune, who would it be? Is, is Byron naturally there? Um, I think given the limited costuming that he was given, mm-hmm. you don't care. He no. acts it so well. The pain and the torture and even his voice acting when he's just as the Wirren oh, it's, is it, fantastic. It's brilliant. And one other thing that it actually shows the genuine love that he has for Vira and it's his humanity coming to the fore as well is that he tells her to escape he doesn't like he doesn't try and get her to be converted like he was you know with the yeah. fucking uh, the infection it's like yeah. get out of here because i don't want you to yeah. become what what i have become so no it's like rogan's sacrifice was great it really was mm. noah's sacrifice exceeds it i think yeah because like, noah sort of has the whole history of the wearing now in his head yeah Right, they've sort of implied they have a genetic race memory, mm-hmm. and even knowing what they went through, mm-hmm. because he knows what they can do, he blew them up. He didn't have to blow up the ship. Like I know we know why out of universe why he blew up the ship, mm-hmm. but in universe he didn't have to blow up the ship, and it sort of makes it sort of makes you think this entire time. He knew what Dune knew. Mm. And so his whole mentioning the ship in the first place. Mm. Like he led the 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 move over into the ship. Mm. So you can imagine that like the plan that they came up with, the plan that Sarah picked up on, the plan that the plan that the lads came up with, the plan that Sarah came up, you know, picked up on the you know the ultimate sacrifice that came at the end. You know, um, with you know, sending them off in this, he was doing that on purpose. Mm-hmm. Do you know? He knew that Vira wouldn't leave. Yeah. So he had to give her an alternative solution. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Don't forget the ship, Vira. There's a ship. Take the ship. The ship can leave. Mm-hmm. Meaning the ship has power. Do you know? Yeah. And. You know, sending the two wearing over to sort of try going up the thing is like let them, you get out, let them get in, mm. <laughs> like <laughs> you know, and it's 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 such a powerful performance, um, oh, huge, and you know, a character that you very quickly could have been like, oh, what a jackass, yeah. Like again, he's built he's built to be at the start, he's built he's built to be the human villain to the TARDIS crew, mm. but. Like you, know, as the story goes on, we also get again see this very powerful character performance from him. Yeah, very much so. Hmm. 
And then we have the Wirren themselves. Wirren. Wirren. They're so fucking, they're so fucking creepy, aren't they? They're creepy as fuck, dude. Like, okay. The bubble wrap gets grief. Mm. Hey, bubble wrap was only invented 20 years prior to the show coming out. Yeah. So it's like, it's not like now where every time you open a box, Mm. there's bubble wrap inside of it. I don't care. Mm. For the most part, the bubble wrap is actually incredibly effective. Mm. It does exactly what they needed to do, particularly when you see the the Wirren grub, as it were. Yeah. And, like, they've painted some of the bubble wrap pink. Yeah. And they've tried to make, like, suckers. Because that's mm. why they obviously picked it, so that it would be, like, suckers yeah. on it. I think it actually works okay. The only bit that's weird is when it's just on Noah's hand. Yeah. That's the only bit where I think it doesn't work. But everything else is actually fine. I like for me, I that the bit on the hand, I don't like. I think, I think it does work. But again, that's just me, you know. But I completely agree that for the rest of it, like compared to the other fucking larva monster that we saw, hmm. this is fucking a yeah. hundred times better. Okay, there, there's one thing that doesn't work. What? And when I was watching it last night. I was like, did they? Oh, for fuck's sake, they did. So, when the doctor goes in to turn the power back on, mm-hmm. while the Wirren are cocooned, mm-hmm. we see two large cocoons, which look kind of cool. Yeah. The ones where they break out of eventually. Mm-hmm. They look kind of cool. Did you notice the bits of paper that were stuck up on the wall as he was going through the steps? No. <laughs> it's like... Several, like, it looks like A4 pieces of paper cut into like the shape of an oval. Oh, for fuck's with sake. Just, like, <laughs> the outline. No, <laughs> like, I... A cocoon just drawn on it. I didn't see that at all, though. I was looking at it going, what the... F-? I never picked up on it before. Hmm. I've seen this story so many, many times. I've never picked up on it before. It's a fucking piece of paper. <laughs> and they're not even green pieces of paper. They're white pieces of paper. <laughs> like... There's so much interesting stuff. Like, there's such an interesting villain in the sense of one how they're introduced to us. It's done in stages. Like, we don't get to yeah. see a fully mature Wern until we actually until we see Noah at the very yeah. end. So, like, it rather rem- than the Queen's body, which doesn't really happen. But you don't really kind of you don't even get a, a full representation of that. Mm. It's like you know when you're playing a video game and the minions get you know power up or they get more armor mm. as they go on. That's what it feels like. You get to see them in stages. And you know, I thought that was pretty cool. Also, their Borg-like ability to assimilate the knowledge mm. is, I think is really fucking cool. Here is the, the question, though, right? Do you think the Wirren are overtly evil? I think these Wirren are. Mm. These Wirren make the conscious decision okay so they came across the ship and they decided to use some of the crew for food mm-hmm. okay that's kind of part of their natural reproductive cycle or that that's explained they used to use cows yeah they don't have access to cows yeah these things are asleep this was for i mean for dune you imagine it was painless because he was unconscious he was in hibernation right yeah. Everything they do after they get Dune's knowledge mm. is villainous. Because everything they do is fuck you, 
you're humans. You, your people, once upon a time, did this to us. You know, hey, you know, once this hatching is over, why don't you leave? We don't want to. They're basically saying we have a never-ending buffet here, and the Earth is ours. It's like no. So I, I would, I would, I wouldn't class maybe necessarily the entire species, but certainly, certainly this clutch of yeah. them. Because oh, like that's what they say, like they like they live in space, but they use the livestock, like so like essentially cows and other cow like animals mm. on the planets that they used as breeding grounds to basically mm. breed their or host their mm. eggs. Or eggs and yeah. And then it was humans who wanted the planets that fucking drove them off them. And it's like, okay. You can kind of see their humanity is a small bit of responsibility in that regards. But mm. I know I agree that this particular much like the ice warriors, I think it depends yeah. on who you're facing at the time. Yeah, and the thing is that, like, what I find very interesting about the Wirren, probably the most creepy part of the Wirren, is that the Wirren have multiple ways to kill you. Mm. Yeah. So we had the queen laid an egg in, or multiple eggs in June, mm-hmm. and. June was slowly eaten from the inside out. Yeah. yeah. Then we have uh, Lysette. Mm-hmm. Lysette was attacked by the larva. grub one, mm-hmm. the larval one, and devoured. Mm-hmm. Not on screen. But we, his body's not there when we next go back into that room. No. He was eaten mm. or devoured alive, essentially. But then with Dune, they convert him. So no, they actually with, have with two... Noah, Noah they or with Noah, they yeah. convert him. So yeah. they actually have two ways, or multiple ways of killing someone. Mm. They can either implant eggs in you, teach mm-hmm. you from the out. They can eat you in their larval form. Mm. Presumably they can eat you in their giant mandible fuck off form yeah and they can also from their larval form convert convert you into one of them Mm. and you are fully conscious and cognizant of it the entire time it is happening that is scary as balls yeah like is it this story gets a lot of grief because of the bubble wrap but like i don't care what they're made of Mm. do you know um, you know, it's like the the animus. It's like the whatever. There's some villains in Doctor Who that doesn't matter what the hell they look like. Their impact is what matters. Yeah. And if you play theater of the mind a little bit of the things we didn't see on screen, hmm. it is alien. Yeah. Oh, hugely, like, hugely. It's it's the creepiest book. And they're actually I would kind of be interested in seeing them again. Definitely. Like imagine with modern computer graphics to get like you and I don't care about the bubble wrap. No. But I know for some people it's a distraction. Yeah. Imagine what modern computer graphics where they don't have to worry about the bubble oh, wrap. Oh they'd look I think they'd look really cool. I think they'd look awesome. Yeah. Creepy fuckers like Although you gotta give it that queen one though, mm. she made it out of that. She 
cut the cable, made it out of that room, down into the um, cryogenic thing, mm. managed to plant an egg, and then go hide in a cupboard. Yeah, like, it's nigh on in the fucking... In, in the I, I, I don't like. know why she went to hide in the cupboard. Um, Maybe she wanted to die in a small place without random humans looking at her. Who knows? Because uh, they're kind of creepy. Um, but yeah. I, I I do love Sarah's reaction. That's like, you found it in the cupboard. Yeah. And even later on, Harry's like, but we found it in the cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> Check your cupboards, people. that time of the week again where we give our overall thoughts on this story as a whole and mark it out of five so trish i think i went first last week you did so you go first this week i'm not doing it on purpose but i can't help it it's a five i was gonna say right <laughs> this story is amazing the story is phenomenal hmm. would i have liked it if harry wasn't as chauvinistic as he hmm. is yeah would I like it if Sarah had a bit more to do in episode two? Because episode three and four, she's fine. Episode one is obviously her getting yeah. converted. Would I like to have her more to do in episode two? Yes, I would. However, everything else is absolutely fine. The story, the pacing, the characters, the relationships, the performances. It's just awesome. It is a fantastic story. And like this story is one of the reasons why, you know, when... Liz joined the show mm. as Sarah Jane. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to try very hard not to give every Sarah Jane story a five. But, like, this is the caliber of writing and of stories that were happening around this time. They are very good. Mm. Like, there's a reason why, I know, speaking for you, I think, you know, up until now, for you and me, this is our favorite, like, time in the show. Mm. Um, like from our previous watch throughs and stuff, there's a reason for that. Yeah, it is awesome, and for Tom in particular, this is his second story, mm. and it doesn't feel like it. It like it feels like he's been doing this for ages. Yeah, do you know? Like I said, the relationship with Vira, I fucking love to bits. Um, this such an interesting character unveiling her own humanity as someone else is losing theirs mm. it's such an interesting thing to watch like I said, it's very alien it's very star trek in many ways like you can totally imagine something like i mean obviously we had it with the borg you know with uh, picard and the borg and stuff but you can imagine this type of story happening in star trek hugely definitely you know it's just i i, I love it mm. um and I can't help it. It's a five. Cool. And I, I'm i really looking forward to reading the book. Um, I'm really looking forward to that new audio drama next year to see what John Nucarati's idea would have been. I'm so I'm so curious as to what that is. Um, but for now, like my recommendation, if you haven't seen this story, dude, Brit box it, get the DVD, get the Blu-ray, get it somehow because it's, it's fucking brilliant. How about you? Cool. So... Uh, first thing you know, stay out of my notes. Uh, <laughs> so, like as I said, look, yeah, and as you just said it there, like this isn't this is an era 
and it's not just because of Tom. Well, mm. he's a factor into it, but it's like the tone and the quality of the writing. It's that horror element. It's that classic. The, we're entering the we're entering the time frame now where Mary Whitehouse starts to mm. have a go at the show because of you know the brutality on display or that kind of mm. stuff. And while certain stories of John and Patrick and even our beloved Doc Bill can be viewed as campy in tone, mm. here like we're getting back to the early days, like you know when. Like the Daleks had the horror tone to it, like Edge of Destruction, you know, Sensorites. Mm. These had that horror tonality to them, or even Moonbase. Mm. Um, the majority of the Base Under Siege season from that. <laughs> like, so there's that horror element, but now we're seeing it consistently. Um, but yeah, like the pacing, the characters, the setting, the villains, there's not, the whole thing, there's not a scrap of fat on the story. Like, no. I deliberately missed one night of my summary write-up just so I could do two episodes back-to-back. I haven't done that since the War Games, right? Just to fucking... Yeah, like, you know, we'll talk about it next week. Mm. Next week is a two-parter. Yeah. This week is a four-parter. I always forget that it goes four and two. I always assume that Ark is a six. Yeah. I mean, it ha- everything that happens, it has to be a six, but it's not. It's a very well-structured for. It, and I, I suppose, just for benefit of people listening, this entire season forms a very, I would say, loosely connected arc. It's, it goes back to the days of the Hartnell era where each story led directly into mm. the next story. So it's yeah. the serialised storytelling aspect of it. Um, yeah, so like, one needs and like So yeah, they, they ended this on they, they ended this going down to another planet and that's where Santarin uh, the next one the Santar experiment mm. picks up so like but no like I, I've I've also given this a five like it was the f- um so was it, normally when I finish writing the story um I leave it for a while to settle in my mind and I'll do my characters and then I'll write the score now this time no I was just like no it's a five straight away that's how good it is like this is a perfect example of the Tom Baker era of Doctor Who. Like I forgot how good this fucking story is, um, and it just has a lot of elements that I love in terms of its narrative and its tone and its setting. But the performances by everyone, there isn't a single bad performance. Even by Libri and Lysette, who are there for only a short amount of time, they serve their function perfectly. So yeah, no, this is it, it, this is a five and a highly recommended watch for definitely a highly recommended watch. And to your point as well, while yeah, like you said, like you didn't want to give every Liz story like a five, you even said it yourself like while this wouldn't be one of your favorite Liz stories, the story is what's getting the five, not just because it has Liz in it. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Very much so, but. That brings us to the end of this second story of season 12. Mm-hmm. Next week, like we said, we have a bit of a shorter trip. Only two episodes. We're encountering an old foe of sorts mm-hmm. in the Santaran experiment. Yes. I w- <laughs> it's just so fucking on the nose. Like, you know. <laughs> what yeah. next week's episode is about? <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Are you looking forward as well to like only recapping for like... 10 minutes. <laughs> it's I, been a long time since you've had I, 10 I, Yeah, it's true. It depends entirely upon how fucking 
structured the story is like because that's true yeah like if you if you go back to like robot it took me longer to do that and that was also for but then again like there was more. oh but you you were feeling you had the plague yeah i had the plague yeah. <laughs> cool so guys we shall talk to you next week bye bye, bye.